All right, well, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 1. We're going to finish up these first seven verses this morning, the introduction to this letter. Last week we started out in the introduction and then I did kind of an overview of the first eight chapters. I'm not going to do that with the last, uh, well, chapters 9 through uh, 16. I won't do an overview of those. And uh, maybe when it comes time when we get closer to that, we'll look at those in a big picture perspective. But I am encouraging you to read through this letter. Remember, it is a letter and is suited to be read through in one sitting, even though that will take you a few minutes to do, but uh, it's worth it. And you'll kind of see how uh, the parts tie together to the whole. These first seven verses are the introduction to a letter. They're... uh, somewhat structured like any letter of that time would have been with introducing the author of the letter and then the recipients and some well wishes to them but of course Paul elaborates here and there is much for our attention in these verses and we're kind of breaking it up with these two main points uh, uh, the man and the message so we're talking about Paul and his message his gospel that he summarizes in these verses so Let's read those seven verses again, and then we'll dive in. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, help us now as we turn to this portion of a worship service that was directed by you where the Scripture should be read and taught and uh, preached from. And I just ask that you would help me now, you'd gift me. Uh, Give me the strength and ability by your Spirit to do the work of preaching and teaching. And I ask for everyone here that you would enable them by the Spirit to comprehend your Word. And may things just really stick with us and jump off the page. And may we learn more about your Word. And, um, And in that, glorify you through it. So we depend upon you for this. So we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You'll remember we talked a little bit about the occasion of this letter, that Paul was a missionary. And at the end of this letter, in chapter 15, verses 20 to 21, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That he was a missionary who wanted to take the gospel to places it has never been 
taken before. And he was uniquely a missionary assigned by God to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so that's what he longed to do. And he was going to go to Jerusalem and drop off uh, some finance, some gifts that he had received from the Gentile churches. He was going to bring that to Jerusalem and drop that off there for uh, believers who were suffering there and in poverty. And then he was going to make his way to Spain. But on his way, he wanted to go to this church that he had never been to, this church in Rome, and uh, was going to spend some time with them. But he wanted uh, that church to support him in his missionary endeavor to go to Spain. So he's writing ahead of time to kind of prepare the way. And uh, they had heard of him, I know, but he's somewhat introducing himself and giving his credentials and really fully laying out what he preaches and uh, paving the way for his future ministry and their support of him. So Paul, when you think about Paul, think about him as a missionary. But he was a very unique missionary, and that's where he goes on in this first verse. He identifies himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ Jesus. Now, partly in Paul's mind, as he writes that out, he could be thinking about himself in, in the terms of him being this special missionary set apart uh, for the gospel of God by God himself. Because in the Old Testament, there were certain men who were identified as the servant of the Lord. So they were set aside in positions of leadership and authority. Men like Moses and uh, Joshua and Elijah and others. Men to whom Israel was really supposed to listen to. And so there may be some of that as an official title. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But more likely, I think, he's just using this in general terms of what all Christians should use it. In very humble terms, and seeing themselves as a servant, the Greek word is doulos, which means slave. Matter of fact, John MacArthur wrote an entire book on this word's use in the New Testament, and the book is called simply Slave. It's the idea that uh, uh, it's a, a, a slave in these New Testament times uh, was one who was owned by another, by a lord, or a kurios, or a master, however we translate that. Uh, they belonged to this lord, and it was their whole life was to live uh, according to the will of their master, to, to do what their master commanded them to do. It's a title of humility, really. And it's how Paul saw himself living and doing what he did, verse 5, for the sake of his name among the nations. He did what he did for the name and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who bought him with his own blood and he saw his entire life in that way. And I think Paul wants us to see our lives in that way. And that's why in verse 4 he refers to Jesus Christ at the end of that phrase, Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? bringing us in on that. He calls in verse 6, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That is a way in which you are to see yourself. I do not belong to myself anymore. I belong to another, the one who died for me and bought me with his own blood. He is my Lord, and I am his servant. 
I live now, I exist now to serve Him. He is, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to see yourself as a servant of Jesus. It's not just missionaries and pastors who are servants of Jesus, as though they're somehow unique in that. All, Paul says, are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We all are to see ourselves as those who are to be serving Jesus with our entire lives, every facet of it, even in the mundane everyday experiences that we all have to do, the the tasks of the day. What we are to have is a picture of ourselves as serving the Lord Jesus Christ in those daily tasks, no matter what they are. We live to serve Him and accomplish His will in our life. That includes in your your secular employment and vocation. You know, you're not just serving Jesus when you're doing something for the church or when you're specifically ministering to someone else. You need to understand that even in your secular employment or as when you're at school or in your home and doing whatever it is that you do on a daily basis that you're required to do, the Bible wants you to see yourself as serving Jesus in that time. That's a paradigm-changing uh, thing for your daily life. As a matter of fact, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, and I think I have a slide for this one, verses 22 to 24, he's going to address now in the church bondservants, same word as he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, but now he's talking to literal bondservants of that first century, slaves, because in that first century, many slaves were coming to faith in Christ, and uh, they would become part of the church. And he has instructions for them specifically. He says, I want you to obey in everything those who are your, keyword, earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing, catch this, the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then he's reminding them, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ as a bondservant. So when you're, and we can apply this in our, our day and age, when you're at work and you're, you're working for the man, so to speak, uh, it's, it's not just the man here that you're working for, you're working for the Lord. So you do your job the, to the best of your ability even when he's not watching you, when your earthly master's not watching. As I know probably we've all fallen into this trap in, in different jobs and the boss isn't around and so we're just doing whatever and the boss comes back around and you're like, oh, hey, yeah, well, hey, boss, we're really working hard here. We're supposed to do our jobs and our employment or whatever station in life that we're in, even if we were literal slaves of the first century. We are to be doing what we're doing, working heartily as for the Lord, because that's who you're serving. Our entire lives take on new meaning when we see our everyday uh, circumstances and our everyday uh, callings as that of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what it what it is. So he's a servant of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul wants them to know about himself, first and foremost. Everything I do and everything I say is in service to my Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in the next phrase that he is called to be an apostle set apart for 
the gospel of God. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And I, I really wish that in the translations of our Bible, they would take that word apostle when it is applied to Paul or one of the others and put a capital A on the front of it. I think that would communicate a little more of what it means. An apostle, to be called an apostle, called to be an apostle, uh, was a specific New Testament, first century office of the early church. It was a... It was a specific office only given to specific men. And it was an office of authority and leadership. It's one of the reasons we listen to the book of Romans and we read it and it comes to us with authority. Understand that. Because he was an apostle. Okay, It's one of the reasons. You cannot be an apostle now. You cannot call yourself an apostle. That's why Paul had to say, I was called to be one. It's not a subjective experience that I just feel warm and fuzzies when I think about being an apostle, so I'm going to pursue that vocation. You can't do that. This was a very unique office to which you had to be called, and Paul was uniquely called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now let me explain. I want to just unpack this idea of apostles for a few minutes because I think it is important. There is actually a new movement out there called the New Apostolic Reformation. Has anybody heard of this? Actually, it's out, it's been out a few years It's led by men like uh, Bill Johnson, who is the pastor of the uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, and the Bethel Music Movement and such. And they're claiming that now he and some others are new apostles and prophets, that God is doing a new work and they're apostles and prophets, and and, uh, they've claimed this title for themselves. And I hope that when I'm done with this explanation, you'll be able to explain to people why that can't be the case. And let me just ask the question right now, like, don't answer out loud, but think about it. If somebody told you about this man claiming to be an apostle now, could you explain to them from the Bible, like you could open your Bible and walk through why that person can't be an apostle? That's important to think about, isn't it? I say that because I don't think we're in a day and age when Christians should back off of their biblical knowledge. I think actually we need to ratchet it up, right? And we have the resources to do that. So let me show you how I would walk through something like that with somebody to say, you can't be an apostle, therefore I don't have to listen to you, and you have no authority over me, and you're a false apostle, okay? So watch this. So he's called to be an apostle. So the word apostle means delegate, envoy, or messenger. In the non-biblical sense or in just a general sense, and it's even used this way in the New Testament a couple of times, it's the idea of someone in authority sending someone else on their behalf to be a delegate. We understand that concept. You, You would send a messenger, they come with your message, they actually carry in some of the political forms and in government forms, the delegate comes and is actually speaking on behalf of the leadership of the country and has... Uh, the not just the responsibility to do that, but the authority to do that. And what they would say would be coming from that one. But in the New Testament, as I explained, it has a very specific understanding of an actual office 
in the New Testament church. These were men selected by Jesus himself to be his authoritative representatives among the churches. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, and I have a slide for that one, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, listen to this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, remember in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Okay, so the, the church is almost pictured here in Paul's gospel as a, a structure, a building, and Jesus is building this church, and he laid out a foundation upon which the church is built. And in this passage, that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now, don't think when you think of prophets, don't think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. I think he's referring to New Testament prophets, which was another office, by the way, special gifting of that New Testament church, in which they were speaking forth the very words of God before they had a New Testament, because they didn't have the New Testament like we do. You had the apostles and the prophets, that's the foundation, Christ, of course, being the cornerstone, and the church then is being built up on that foundation. So that's step one in saying, you can't be an apostle now. The foundation of the church has already been laid out. And it passed away 2,000 years ago. And the fruit of that we have in the New Testament. So the foundation of that, the teaching of the apostles, part of which we're studying right this very moment. Okay, This is the foundation, the Word of God. So that's, that's the first thing I would bring to somebody who was claiming somebody who was being an apostle. Show them they can't. That's how the foundation was already laid. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 43, when the church just began, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is how the church was being built up. Believers at that time gathered around the apostles, and the apostles would teach them. They'd begin that great commission, teaching them everything Jesus taught them, uh, commanded them to teach. They taught them as the Spirit was leading them to see more and more about the person and work of Christ. Just as Jesus promised in that upper room they would do. They're teaching them. They're giving themselves to it. And notice in 43 of Acts 2, it says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They were given by God special giftings that really set them apart so that people would listen to their message. Authenticating powers from the Spirit of God that authenticated their message so that people would listen to them. They were specifically gifted. They were were called uniquely. They were gifted with special power from the Spirit to do these signs and wonders so that people, it would authenticate their message. Paul had this. Romans 15, verses 18 through 19, he said, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Listen to this. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he wasn't just preaching the message. What was actually happening, he was able to do things that no one else could do except by the power of the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, listen to this account in Acts chapter 19 of Paul's ministry. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That is supernatural, spiritual, apostolic power no one else had. And God rested it on Paul so that they would listen to the message of Paul, the apostle called to be apostles, set apart for the gospel of God. This wasn't the kind of just absolute nonsense of Benny Hinn and others now that are out there in this uh, new apostolic reformation and these fake miracles that aren't miracles, okay? This was stuff that was undeniable. People that could not walk, literally getting up and walking. People being healed of diseases that you could see right then and there, not some fake testimony on a stage at a coliseum or at a, a stadium somewhere that nobody could verify later. These were real powers that came from the Spirit of God that were undeniable that accompanied the office of an apostle. And these men had to be chosen by Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, this is laid out for us in Luke chapter 6. It says, In these days he went out, that is Jesus, to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God, presumably about who he would choose to be his apostles. Verse 13, When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. They didn't bring this title upon themselves, did they? Jesus calls all those that were following him at that time in his earthly ministry together. He chooses these 12 himself and he called them apostles. That was a qualification. He then names, goes on in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, to actually name these men for the sake of the early church. Verse 14, Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now, of course, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, as Jesus knew all along, Judas was a traitor. Judas drops off from the twelve. And in Acts chapter 1, Peter stands up and tells the rest, according to the Old Testament a prophecy that one would fulfill this betrayer's office, we need to pick a new apostle for there to be 12. So they chose out two men, and they prayed over these two men, and they cast lots, and the lot fell on this man, Matthias. But listen to Acts chapter 1, verses 21-22. That gives some of the qualifications here. It has to be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection, to join in that twelve. And as I said, it ends up being the man Matthias. But you'll notice something important about Luke's account in Luke 6 and Luke's account in Acts 1 that Paul's name wasn't mentioned in either one. Paul was not a disciple of Christ in his life. Paul at this point was not a witness to the resurrection. 
So you get to beginning of the book of Acts and the birth of the church, and Paul's name isn't there. So what of that? And believe it or not, in the early church, that was a real sticking point for many Christians and churches and groups and churches that were questioning, wait a minute, who is this Paul? He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't Judas's replacement. What qualifies him to be an apostle? They knew, you see, they knew that you can't just call yourself an apostle. Could you explain to someone the when and the where and the why and the how of Paul being called to be an apostle? That's important to be able to do now. So what I want to do is I want to take the time to look at this. When was Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus? How did that happen? Start in Acts chapter 7. This is where you're first introduced to this man. You know, when I read through a book, when I pick up a new book to read, I like to look at the author. I like to look him up. So I'll read a little bit about him, his little blurb on the book, and then I like to do a little Google research, find out who he is, what's his training, What's his main thrust in ministry and life if I can find things on him to know about him? And before we begin in our study through Romans, I think it's important to know who Paul is, right? Now let's look back at his history. Acts chapter 7 in verse 54. What is happening here is Stephen is uh, getting done preaching a sermon that lifted up Jesus as the Son of God in power. He lifted up Jesus as the one descended from David, crucified, risen again, and is now at the right hand of the Father. Okay? That's a, the essence of the message. It's showing how uh, the Jews were well known for rejecting the Spirit's work, including in Jesus, and so they got angry at him. And in verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Now that's the very first time you're introduced to Paul the Apostle. Far from being a disciple of Christ here, right? Far from preaching the gospel of God concerning his son. Here he is being introduced to us with his Hebrew name, Saul. Now, Saul had two names, at least. One was his Hebrew name, Saul, named probably after the first king of Israel, who was a Benjaminite, by the way, and so was Saul. We learn about that in Philippians chapter 3, a Jew who is actually descended from the tribe of Benjamin. And so his parents would have given him this Hebrew name of Saul. But in addition to that, uh, he had this unique privilege of being born Jew, yes, but also being born a Roman citizen by birth, 
with all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen. And so they most likely at that time assigned him also a Greek Roman name of Paul, which he would be known as, would become very uh, helpful to him as he was called later on to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And you can see already how, how this man was being groomed from childhood to do exactly under God's uh, direction, of course, to be exactly the man that he needed to be for the occasion that God would commission him, directing in his life like that. So he was Saul, or also Paul, as he becomes more known uh, in, in the Gentile regions. Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8, verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was an equal opportunity persecutor. Men and women, didn't even matter. You know, under the time of the Soviet area, uh, well, when I visited Russia, we went to a church in a village where, uh, uh, a small village, small church, and they had pictures, though, of all their former pastors for like going back decades in there. And right in the middle was a woman, a picture of a woman in this long list. And the churches in Russia, you know, would only assign a, a man to the office of pastor, so it was unusual. Well, the person that was showing us this said, there's a woman here because at one time during the Soviet persecution, the, uh, uh, the Soviet Union, the uh, soldiers came in and they took out all the Christian men, never to be seen again from that village. They found out about these men, they came, they captured them, that. but they leave the women. It's interesting. Men are brought off to camps that are doing whatever. There was even seemed to be, maybe, I don't know, to, to some degree, even among the most atheistic Soviet uh, uh, communist uh, Russian party some kind of sympathy or mercy to women but that didn't exist with Paul so Luke draws that out very clearly he was filled with such intense hatred such intense hatred for Christians and for the gospel and for the name of Jesus that he was dragging off men and women to be persecuted and that happened friends until he was called to be an apostle in chapter 9 Paul, chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, it's interesting to note that in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony, here written uh, by Luke looking down on it, and Paul recounted twice. This is a very testimony of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to him, and his unique calling is given out three times. That's to emphasize in that early church his calling, because they needed to know why he's called to be an apostle. They had to know this. And so this is recounted three times for our sake. Says in verse 17, So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. And I love this, listen. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God, you see. Immediately, his message of Roman 1 was starting to bear fruit. I was set apart for the gospel of God concerning his Son. I was descended from David, but declared to be the Son of God in power at his resurrection by the Spirit of holiness. Immediately, that message he is filled with and begins proclaiming it in the synagogues. Jesus is the Son of God. So back now in Romans chapter 1, Paul is uniquely called by Jesus himself, set apart to take the gospel, the gospel concerning the Son of God, into the nations and proclaim it. Of course, Jesus even said that Paul would suffer much on account of his ministry, and that's exactly what happened to him all the way up until the point when he was martyred. So he preached this message, uh, catch this quickly, set apart for the gospel of God, and then he talks about in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the whole Bible is the gospel, really. Even your Old Testament talks about the gospel, about Jesus laying the foundation. It's concerning his son who was descended from David. We learned all about that in Matthew's gospel, according to the flesh. And was declared to be, or appointed to be, perhaps, the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Essentially meaning that uh, he was descended from David. He lived that life, what we read about in the uh, the four gospels. And then he was crucified and buried. But on the third day, of course, God raised him up from the dead, and at that point on, a new era, you might say, has dawned in which, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The man Christ Jesus is the Son of God in power that began, he's always been the Son of God, of course, but that that unique kingly sonship and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ began at his resurrection and continues to this day as he reigns 
from heaven over all. That was the message of Paul, and that's what he will unpack in the upcoming chapters. And what Paul never forgot, guys, and I'm going to land the plane with this, verse 5. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You notice that word in there in verse 5, grace. What Paul understood is that his ministry of apostleship was all by the grace of God. You know, really, any kind of formal ministry person, pastor, missionary, those that are set apart in some ways and supported by the church to do the work of God, if they don't understand this, it's a real problem. If they don't understand that their salvation and their ministry is all the grace of God to them, that becomes a real problem, doesn't it? And Paul never forgot that, never forgot where he came from and what God had done for him and in him was all by God's grace. Think about the fact that when we're first introduced to Saul, he's so hate-filled. He's so antagonistic to the gospel. So hateful of Christians. And yet now... 13, almost half of the New Testament written by this man proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. That is a testimony of the grace of God, isn't it? The power of God, the power of the Son of God, the willingness of the Son of God to save and transform sinners for His own glory. Are you praying for someone who's antagonistic to the gospel? You talk to them and their, their skin crawls every time you talk about God or the Bible. And you think, hmm, they're a lost cause. They just could never, never become a Christian. Friends, if you think that way, you just don't understand yet what Paul's talking about, about the power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he was set aside. God did all this in this man to be an example to us of what he does for all sinners. That he changes our hearts and forgives us of our sins and gives us new purpose and direction in life. You think to yourself, why would would God choose to do this with Paul? Well, we don't have to wonder. Paul told us, 1 Timothy chapter 1, He said this in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He did this with Paul saved him, commissioned him, made him the most prominent New Testament figure, wrote through him almost half of the New Testament so that every time you read from him and you think about his testimony and you read about it in the book of Acts, you think, oh, the perfect patience of Jesus, his willingness and power to save sinners. I never have to doubt, will Jesus save me from my sins? 
No sinner, no matter what they've done, doesn't matter. You could bring to me any sin that you could think of, and it's not beyond the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the heart is not beyond the power of the Son of God to change. Do we actually take that person and propel them into useful service as a servant of Christ Jesus? This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, catch this now, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, you understand that nothing's hindering you from calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, except maybe your own stubborn obstinance. But know this, and know it from the example of Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, that if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, like you say to him, save me from my sins. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I need to be changed. That if you do that and you call on him, the promise is this, he will save you every time. There's no exceptions to this. It's gospel truth. That's why Paul said, it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So call on him if you're a sinner and he will save you from your sins. And he longs for the Romans to know this grace of Jesus. He longs for us to know this grace of Jesus. That's why he concludes it in verse 7 to all those now in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you experienced the saving grace of Jesus in your life? Friends, I hope it's the testimony of every person in this room. Paul and the rest of these first three chapters is going to have to take his time in unpacking just how sinful we are so that we understand by the time we get to chapter three how gracious Jesus is. And the gospel will be more glorious to us. Let's pray. Father, we believe that Jesus is your Son. We believe that He lived and died for us, and more than that, has been raised and is at your right hand now in glory. We thank you for Him. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for working things out in history to fulfill it all for us. And I pray for anyone in this room right now, God, who is hard-hearted against the gospel. I ask that you would do what you did with, with Paul and give them a new heart and turn them from their sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen.